Welcome back to Not Too Busy to Write. I'm currently on a writing deadline and very much looking forward to recording new episodes of the podcast this coming autumn. But in the meantime, I'm re-releasing a few favourite episodes over the summer. Today, it's my conversation with Chloe Ashby. At the time of recording, Chloe's debut novel, Wet Paint, had just come out. Wet Paint is now out in paperback, and her glorious second novel, Second Self, is out now in hardback. So it felt like the perfect time to revisit this episode. I absolutely loved this conversation with Chloe about writing about visual art and fiction and juggling journalism, fiction and nonfiction as a writer. Links to all the books mentioned are in the show notes. Over the coming weeks, we'll revisit a few of my favorite episodes from the past two years. If you are missing the writing chat and the book recommendations, please do sign up for my weekly newsletter at pennywinsorwrites.com. The links are all in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. I have Chloe Ashby with me today. She is an author and an arts journalist based in London. Her arts journalism spans across interviews, reviews of exhibitions and books, and she's also a former editor of Monocle magazine. She's the author of two nonfiction books, Look at This If You Love Great Art, and also Colours of Art, The Story of Art in 80 Palettes, which is out this August, and her debut novel, Wet Paint, is out now. Thank you so much for being here, Chloe. Hi, Penny. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm very happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. It was um, Abigail, when she was on the podcast, who mentioned wet paint when she was reading a proof. And as soon as she told me what it was about, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to read this book. It's so up my street on so many levels. It's so up my street. But first of all, could you just give us a quick, for the listener, a quick brief rundown of what the book is about? Yes. Um, yes, I will. And also that was the loveliest thing to hear that. I think I told you I'd listened to almost the whole episode and then pressed pause and then forgot to come back to it and then did about a week later and heard this lovely recommendation. So yes, just quick thank you to Abigail for that. <laughs> um, but yes, so Wet Paint is about Eve, a young woman who, if you asked how she was, would probably tell you she is fine in the way that we often do. She has been scraping along for the past few years doing things like waiting tables and cleaning her shared flat in exchange for cheap rent. And she's been relying on various small routines, among them her weekly visits to the Courtauld Gallery, where she goes and kind of parks herself in front of Manet's painted barmaid, who's almost her de facto therapist. So Since the death of her best friend, she has been keeping everything and everyone really at arm's length. But there are painful memories that she can't shake. And it's not long before this incredibly precarity maintained life that she has begins to unravel. And that's where the book takes us. Um, I the first thing I would love to talk about is. Um, this painting. And I guess what I was thinking I was, as I was writing it, first of all, it's just, um, it's such a really interesting experience being with a character as they're viewing others. And there's a lot of seeing that's happened happening in this book, which we'll, we'll talk about. But, um, but I, um, I guess I, my first question is, um, who came first, Susan or Eve for you? Oh, it's such a brilliant question. Um, and the answer is them both. Yeah. So the book started, it, it did It did start with two things. One of those things was Eve's voice. And that voice came to me, you know, exactly as it is in the book. It was this kind of spiky, 
um, detached, often quite dry, funny in a way, uh, in her own way. <laughs> um, it was this voice that just, yeah, it just it just came into my head, and 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 then it was kind of the process of working out, you know, why she sounds the way she sounds, mm. and almost going backwards from there. So that came to me. And at the same time, this painting that I have kind of been endlessly fascinated with for sort of as long as I can remember. But at university, I studied at the Courtauld and I remember that was the first time I saw it in the flesh. Um, and I, I think probably, you know, I'd always been interested in the painting, but in the other side of my writing life, which I know we're going to get to later, I write exhibition reviews and I interview artists and the way that I often begin a piece and find my way into an article is to kind of have a visual hook or mm. you know like like a kickstart or a prompt or something and I guess the painting was that for me you know for the novel um and in the beginning I, I, di I didn't sort of sit down and think okay I'm going to write a book and and this is going to be a key part of it it was more that I was kind of trying a different form of writing mm. and and I thought well what should what, what should I play around with here and those two things just sort of came to me oh that's so interesting so so basically you could almost take a tool that you rely on in your kind of writing day job so to speak and yeah. um, transform it into how you can approach fiction that's so interesting and I'm sure so many listeners will be fascinated to hear that and I think it's a really, um, it's it's really about finding your way in sometimes, isn't it? And maybe you need to go in in the way that you would usually let yourself into work. Yeah, I think so. I mean, any, I think anyone who writes will understand that fear of staring at a blank page, um, you know, which I still have. It's ridiculous. I don't know why I do, but when I sit down sometimes to write these these uh, freelance or journalistic pieces which, you know, they, it might only be 800 words, but I have to sit down and think, right, how am I going to start this one? Um, and, and so for me, I think because I am quite a visual person, I do love to have that visual hook. And yeah, I think it just, it, it just sort of, sort of happened um, and then became a very, very important part of the book. And what happened over time is that this voice and this image um, you know, Eve and Suzanne, Suzanne is the name of the barmaid, as the book goes on and as my writing developed, they kind of begin to, they began to sort of merge. Mm, yeah. And um, and throughout the book, um, Eve has got this, she's experienced this quite extreme grief um, a few years earlier and she's keeping it very carefully hidden from everyone around her. Um, and she's managing her life in very kind of in a very sort of precarious but minute way in order to function and it's a really it was it's it was fascinating to read because i think um often we think of grief in its acuteness in perhaps its immediacy after we lose somebody um but we don't often explore and talk about this really quite terrifying long-term grief that can happen when people can get stuck especially i think when the death is a very difficult death for whatever reason. Mm. Um, and so did, again, was that, was that grief again? So your, her voice came first, but, but was it quite clear to you that there was some trauma underlying the way she was managing everything in her, in the way that she was? Yeah, I think, yes. I think from the start, 
it was clear to me that there was something something missing in her life and that I think one of the sort of key ideas that I wanted to explore with the book and that tied in so well with this painting is the kind of the disconnect that goes on for so many of us between you know at least in certain times of our life between the way that we appear and kind of present ourselves to the world and to to others and the way that we feel Mm. um and you know how kind of it's it can be a a huge disconnect that is very hard to kind of bridge and so yeah that was something that I that I was really interested in from the start and when it came to the grief side of things I think I wanted to I guess explore the like the small ways as well in which grief can kind of snag at you over time so for Eve there are moments when it's unbearable and when she's kind of experiencing flashbacks that it's almost take over the present and this mm-hmm. is a big thing for her she her present is so sort of tethered to the past that she's unable to move forward um and I think that's partly because when she experienced this death she was already in this sort of phase of her life where, you know, this, what I've started calling kind of the hazy mid twenties when you're figuring out who and what you want to be, um, which is a kind of complicated enough time as it is. And then you add trauma into the mix. And I think, yeah, it's easy to find yourself sort of teetering on the edge. Um, yeah. When she's, and when she experiences this trauma, it's at the end of university. And it is that it's like that point in your life where you're, you're very much sort of on the edge of young adulthood and proper adulthood in a way, aren't you? It's like we always, we don't, we don't sort of suddenly become adults when we're 18. We're in this sort of almost transition period sort of between maybe 18 and sort of 23, 24 or something like that, where you're sort of a young adult and um, exactly. and she's in that place and, and that trauma, it's like it almost causes her to be stuck there. And, yeah. and kind of, there's a kind of yeah. stasis, which is so fascinating and she clings on to it. So that stasis, she really clings on to it because you can see that, it has served her. Like she has been able to function on a certain level just by keeping everything as samey and safe as possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, one of the things I always say about Eve, um, and I, I kind of admire this about her, um, even though it's not necessarily always healthy, but, you know, Eve is very much being um, at a time when lots of us definitely I feel like we should always be doing stuff mm-hmm. we should always be moving forward and, and striving and yeah yes yeah, striving um and she's the opposite she just wants to be and part of that I think is that you know that it's wrapped up with the fear of doing and moving on and what that means in terms of moving on from this friend who has died um and and yeah this sort of the whole idea of um her being in this kind of unfixed sort of strange mid-space that's why I came up with the the name of the book in the end, Wet Paint, because I wanted to kind of get across the idea that she's kind of unformed in some way and she, life is wobbly and unstable. Um, yeah, the, the, there's, there's stuff that needs to happen, enable in order for her to be able to move on and yeah. um, let's talk for a minute about this whole idea of being seen um because what happens to Eve is that she ends up um because of a few things that happen early in the book ends up going off to become a, a life model in order to earn some money and 
it's so completely fascinating and I love the different ways in which you play with with her being seen um uh, it's something I'm completely obsessed with in literature and cinema as well (laughs) this idea of seeing and being seen and I guess I just wanted to um to to talk to you about this like uh why why did you choose life modeling specifically there's there's such an interesting element of display and and what's fascinating about her as a character even though this is set a contemporary novel there's very little in the way of being seen on social media and things like that in the book um but but she exposes herself very much in this classroom where other people are watching her but to me the thing I found so fascinating about it is this idea that she uh that where you play with the with the control of it and that where she has control over being seen and when she doesn't have control and how that goes back and forth throughout the novel yeah um oh well thank you first of all um it's something that I have yeah the subject of seeing and being seen I have been interested in for a really long time I think even when I was at university I was studying art history and I would that was what I kind of focused on in my dissertation and um yeah with so the thing that I the the main reason I wanted Eve to become a life model which is something she does in a kind of in a bid for empowerment it's a way of her taking control you know and she she gets excited by the the thought that all these people are giving up their time to come and look at her. And that does her feel good and it does make her feel seen and appreciated in the beginning. Um, But yeah, the reason I wanted this for Eve was because there is, partly it was to emphasise this disconnect between how she presents herself and how she feels because the idea is kind of heightened once she gets into the studio because she is literally still. She, she's she's standing totally still, totally naked in front of these strangers, and yet her mind is kind of racing a lot of the time, um, or at least that's how it. As things go, as thing as time goes on, um, yeah, she starts to realize that she's maybe not being seen in the way that she initially thought she would be. Um, she realizes that to the student, she's kind of more of a still life than a person. I think she compares herself to a block of wood <laughs> or a, or a fruit bowl at some point. Um, but another thing I think is to begin with, at least the the looking that goes on within the life drawing studio is actually a kind of it's a safer and less charged kind of looking than the looking that goes on when she is working in the restaurant, for example, um, which is, is, there's a scene that very early on in the book, she, she's working in a restaurant and she's kind of being looked at in a way that is inappropriate, being touched as well um, by a customer. And yeah, so, which is something that I just find, I, I just, as soon as it kind of came to me, I ran with it because the thought that you could feel safer and the looking can feel safer when you are completely naked when you're clothed out in the real world it's kind of it's sort of crazy um so yeah it's it's a subject I've kind of always been interested in and then of course when you think about the painting as well such a key part of this Manet painting which for, for anyone who isn't familiar with it it shows um a barmaid she's she's standing behind a bar and behind her is this kind of huge gold frame mirror 
And in the mirror, you can see a crowd kind of mingling, just going about that evening. But the crowd is sort of all a blur. And in contrast, the, the barmaid's this really hyper-realized figure. Um, and yet she's sort of invisible. No one's mm. paying any attention to her. Um, she is in the middle of this crowded room and yet she's entirely alone. And then on top of that, then you begin to notice there's this shadowy kind of male figure reflected in the mirror who's looking at her. Is she looking at him? So there's there's so much about it. I think like you, yeah, I um I love the the topic. I'll put a link to it in the show notes so that anyone listening mm. can can look at it um as as they're listening as well. Cause it is it's really incredible. And you printed it, you had it printed in the front, which I'm so so brilliant mm. that you were able to get permission to do that because I, I kept flipping to it. And every time oh. there was a scene where she was watching um Suzanne, I would go to the front and just look at her again and see what she was seeing. Um but yeah, I because I I found that really interesting as well, that juxtaposition between um um Eve's need to feel seen and to control the way she is seen, and then the way in which she sees Suzanne and how she relies on watching her. Um, and and how those work together, really, really fascinating. And it was just um, it's so like I think the things that I really loved, particularly when in the studio where there is this where you can see that line being crossed and blurred and where she starts to lose control and it goes and it and and tries to gain it back and it's in those little moments where there's just infringements on her of somebody not turning away when she's putting her robe on you know the difference between how you can be on a stage essentially and controlling the way that the viewer sees you and once you're off stage then um you know that how if somebody infringes on that and tries to control how how the try tries the viewer when the viewer tries to control that how um completely terrifying that is you can feel it you can see the difference between um when she has control and when she doesn't have control over her body and yeah. how people see her body um i find it so interesting i did um I've been doing my master's again. So I reread John Berger and um, oh, I've been writing brilliant. about this in, in my <laughs> dissertation as well, actually. And, um, and this idea of uh, very much of how women are both viewed, but also completely aware all the time about how they're being viewed. And yeah. you feel that with Eve, you feel like her constant awareness in her life and her jobs that she do, she does even aside from um, the life modeling. But as you say, when she's a barmaid and when she's um, a waitress, like constantly aware of how she's being looked at mm. um, and how modeling for her is, is like gaining control rather than losing. It. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's funny. Yeah. Those moments that you mentioned where, where that line is crossed, even within the studio. So there are a few awkward moments before, you know, before the guy who's organizing the class says, okay, everyone kind of start drawing but when he and it's fine when when they're looking at her when she when that happens and when he's looking at her when that happens. But before when he comes up close to her on this sort of mini stage, she suddenly is so aware that there is a stranger just a couple of inches away from her when she's not wearing clothes or, or at this point, maybe she's got a robe over her. But still, suddenly it becomes mm. um, charged in a way that it's not when she is posing and and it's sort of official um, yeah. quote unquote, if that makes sense um but yeah and I, and I think you're right that 
she is aware of how people are looking at her with, through all the jobs. And even when she starts doing the babysitting or she likes mm. to call it nannying because it sounds more professional, but the, you know, she, she's aware that people, of the way people look at her with when she's with this little girl and like yeah. does she look like a mum does she feel like a mum um she yeah she's and I, and I think it's quite a normal thing we live in this world where you know especially as a woman I think it's very hard mm. to move through the world and not experience that yeah it's true and I really I found that really interesting and definitely relatable this idea of like assessing how you're appearing um quite constantly she's assessing how she's appearing to others and partly what she's doing is making sure that she's appearing to look like she's functioning properly (laughs) of course yeah like so many people who are experiencing what she's experiencing in inside her head um and that's that's something I want to talk to you about as well this idea of um because throughout the novel that she experiences really quite severe intrusive thoughts about Mm. the trauma that she has experienced and they are very intrusive you know they interrupt the narrative um quite frequently and you switch to italics when we do that and we very much know that we're inside of her head in a way that is uncontrollable by her and I found that mm. there's such a really beautiful and interesting interesting device because it was um you can feel that lack of control she has in being able to control when the memories are coming to her because they're often coming in really inappropriate moments um and and affecting her yeah. ability to function in her life. Um, and you really feel that as a reader, the way it intrudes. And so I, I wanted to ask you about the process of coming that of that coming together. Was that, did that happen very naturally along with Eve's voice? Or was it something that you layered in afterwards in terms of how you were going to denote it on the page and things like that? Mm. I think with the flashbacks, it was more something that I laid in after. And a big part of it was wanting to give a voice to Grace, to this friend of hers who's mm-hmm. died. Um, so the book, you know, it it's Eve's story, but it's such a kind of an ode to their friendship um, and to the time that they spent together. And I think it, it felt important to have you know, they, these these are flashbacks and, and memories that do intrude and they are overwhelming, but also lots of them, especially at the beginning of the book, they're happy memories. Mm. And I really wanted to show a kind of softer side to Eve um, and a side to her where she is open and when she feels comfortable. And also just to show that love between these two young women. Um so yes they start off kind of they're fairly lengthy to begin with and they provide kind of snapshots of them being silly or um I don't know just doing normal stuff that they're, they're not big moments I think that was another thing I just wanted to show the little everyday things that went on between them because they're as much what she misses as kind of the big the big stuff mm. um and then with time they begin to kind of snag at her more frequently and they're quite sort of um short sharp flashes um and they become very overwhelming until the point where it all sort of spills over and you're not quite sure whether you're in the past or the present um but yeah and so and and with them again to get that kind of intimacy across I made a decision to refer to Grace in the second person is you so that hopefully the reader kind of feels that um yeah, feels that intimacy there and and the closeness. Um, 
Yes, I don't know if I've, I've sort of rambled off. No, no, it does. <laughs> it makes perfect sense because the I think from a reader perspective, the you it does it like you feel so close to them, um, and I think it's it's really interesting because the, the novel is is in mostly in the first person except for these um, these memories and the switching to the second person. It's it almost sort of draws you in even closer, um, uh, which is really interesting because there is there is also, as you say, because it it changes and it sort of escalates as you go through the book, these moments. And that escalation starts to feel more claustrophobic. You almost feel more claustrophobic inside of Eve's head. Um, but yeah, so it's a really, it's it was just, it's just such an interesting way of doing it. Um, yeah, I thought, yeah, it was really, oh. it was really done. Really well, beautifully thank done. You. Um, I think it's it's tricky, isn't it, with anything that, um, although it's not labelled as anything, it does feel, I guess, like perhaps PTSD or something where where the lines begin to blur and it's not easy to get that kind of thing across on the page. And so, yeah, so, yeah, so yeah. it was a really, it was just a really interesting way of handling this idea of, you know, suddenly being very inside somebody's head. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, that I think that is what I wanted for the book you know I, I I I hope the reader feels that they're in his head and I and I'm aware that at times that will probably be a kind of testing um experience and people have said to me that you know they they love her they want to hug her then they want to shake her um <laughs> and shout at her but I kind of that that makes sense to me and that's kind of great to hear because that's what often how you feel with friends isn't it um, yeah and it, it's a very immersive book in that sense yeah and I think yeah. that that second person voice sort of adds an extra layer of kind of 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 intimacy for sure um and it is really wonderful to get a bit of grace because obviously mm. um when you have a character that's dead right from the beginning it's yeah. a challenge isn't it to make them <laughs> to make us really understand what's missing from Eve's life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to help with that, you know, to, to maybe help the reader empathize with Eve more when she is making mistakes and Mm. when she, you know, outwardly is, well, make, yeah, just not always being the best version of herself, not always being a good person. Um, yeah, I and, hope that it. And uh, <laughs> and on that note, and that's so interesting. So also on that note, you know, she has a little bit of a, and this was one of my favorite bits about her. I have to say, is her kleptomania is just. Oh God, yeah. It's well, so she would call it great. borrowing, Penny. <laughs> Sorry, what's it called? She she would call it borrowing. She would call it course. borrowing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but I loved it because it's um, it's so um, it's so unacceptable on so many levels, especially because it's often from people who trust her. Yeah. And so it's, but I love that. And I love this idea that, you know, that she's, she's, I still, I do forgive her. I'm with her. I understand. And you understand even more as the book goes on about, about what feelings she's trying to create when she, Mm. she takes really bad risks like that Yeah, in terms of risking her friendships and the people who actually are there for her. Um, and uh, and it's just really interesting. I'm always fascinated by this idea of writing characters that have these really unlikable traits about themselves that do challenge us as readers to be there, to continue to be there by their side and kind of uh, not switch off from them with that kind mm-hmm. of behaviour. 
but um but there's so much warmth in her um yeah that, that you totally are just like oh well. <laughs> I know it's not oh, that bad. <laughs> yeah and it kind of you know it goes back to the seeing and being seen stuff because it's sort of her way of trying on other characters and mm. seeing how it feels to be I don't know to be the type of person who wears fancy nail polish or um it's also about just comfort I think a lot of the time um especially when it comes to borrowing her flatmates stuff it mm. it makes her feel safe um yeah. So she does it for various reasons. But yeah, I mean, I, I forgive her. I, I would understand if the reading <laughs> did. Um, and then, you know, she starts off small as well, doesn't she? She, well, at least when she gets into the studio with things like sticks of gum, it's not, it's not um, about the stealing. It's about the feeling that. Yeah, the, that it creates in her. Yeah. 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 Oh, she is a completely fascinating character. Completely Thank fascinating. Um, and I just wanted to talk now a bit about your writing career overall because you, your writing work spans such a really gorgeous variety of work. Now, um, you've obviously spent years as a journalist, um, but you've also written two nonfiction books. And I, I guess, I wanted to ask about first of all. Did you always know that you wanted to write fiction as well? Or is that just something that just sort of opened up and happened over time? Mm-hmm. It's it's a question I've kind of been thinking about because I've I've been asked it a few times now and I and I had to kind of figure out in my head what my answer was. But I mean, I've always, as I think lots of writers are, I've always been a, a big reader. And I always knew that I did want to write, but I think um you know, at least at, at the at the age when I was when I when I knew I wanted to write, or I hoped that I could write for work, fiction didn't really cross my mind as a kind of viable option in that sense. Um, and so I went down the journalism route, uh, which you know didn't feel like a second choice at the time. I, I also loved that side of my writing. Um, but I think maybe fiction has always been in the back of my mind. Um, when I was when I was younger, um, my ste- my stepdad at the time, as in he's still my stepdad, but at the time he was um, he was a books editor for a, a newspaper that's based in America, and we used to or he used to get sent each week tons of of books and it was so exciting I always thought because just I mean just getting parcels in the post was a kind of exciting thing when I was a child <laughs> I mean getting books in the post is still the most exciting kind of it post, is like, exciting, <laughs> isn't it? It is. um but he would you know he would take maybe one out of a pile in a week or every two weeks to review and then the rest would go into what we called the out pile which was this kind of huge huge pile of books that was actually conveniently located beneath my bedroom and I would occasionally go and kind of oh gosh now I'm sounding like Eve steal books <laughs> sorry that's my dog barking in the background if you can hear um and and I would pretend to review them like he was reviewing them and so I think I've always you know as well as always being a big reader I've always kind of engaged with fiction and with novels on a, on a slightly kind of critical way as well um but yeah it was only it was only um it was in 2017 when I started to write wet paint and it really came about because I 
just wanted something for myself and I wanted to try something new and I think I wanted to write without asking permission you know in journalism it's always the yeah. case or, or t- tends to be a case of pitching is your pitch going to be accepted there you get your commission and with this I could just go off and I could do it um so yeah it just started out as something for me and something that I love to do it's it's there is something so thrilling about that especially I think when when what it is that you do when when what you do creatively is becomes a job this idea of sort of um having almost like an affair on the side with your craft yeah. and doing something different with it is so exciting in a funny kind of way yeah. um because it does it's like suddenly like nobody's given me permission to do this and there's something quite feeling about that um I you know having spent years as a photographer I know that feeling as a photographer both then and now as a writer now that I'm earning money writing and I'm writing a novel on the side which nobody has paid me for and who knows um it's there is something quite exciting about that isn't it about yeah not having permission from somebody to do something definitely and it does also you know thinking of the affair kind of analogy it often starts out as something that's fairly secretive I don't think I told anyone for a while um that I was doing it probably because I thought it would sound silly I don't know or I didn't know where it was going and as I said earlier for you know for a long time I I kind of was just having fun with it and I Mm. and I didn't plan to write a book and it was only after you know so many months that I started to kind of take it more seriously and think, okay, maybe this could really be a thing. Um, so yeah, it's just a very, it was a very freeing way, I think, to to get into it. And your nonfiction books, the um, the one that was published last year, and then you've got another one coming out this year, um, were they ones that you uh, wrote proposals for and pitched, or were you approached by the publishers to write those books? So I was approached by the publisher um, and for the first one, so for Look at This If You Love Great Art, that one was the happiest commission, partly because I had just handed my uh, notice in at uh, Monocle, the magazine I was working at before. And about a day later, uh, I got this commission, which was just the best timing. and you know the year before that I had gone down to four days a week and I was kind of I I I went into freelancing in a kind of very um I don't know sensible uh, way so sensible (laughs) I know so boring unlike Eve Um, (laughs) that's a big difference between us I think she's a lot more reckless than I am um but yeah so this then I was um getting freelance full time and I got this and it was part of a series there's also one on photography one on music and then they basically said would you like to write about 100 artworks you love which for someone who's studied art history and you know always wanted to write about art it was kind of the dream commission Amazing. um yeah and then and then I was very lucky off the back of that uh different imprint an editor but same publishing house then needed someone for this book on colors and the history of color in art colors in art um and so yeah I've then since been working on this book which comes out in August Oh, that's so yeah. exciting. I'm always love talking to writers or or artists of any kind that do multiple things within their craft because I find it so interesting that people almost expect us to stick very strictly with one kind of genre. And that's not how 
craft works are all craft I don't think and I think um which I think writing is both an art and a craft and um and so I really I'm always completely obsessed with talking to people about this <laughs> because um it feels really freeing it feels really really yeah. freeing and I mean maybe it doesn't day to day I don't know how you feel but it I think in general this idea that we can be freed from being locked into a very specific way of working um is very freeing but so in reality though how is that working at the moment in terms of you're managing your time between nonfiction and freelance journalism and now obviously you're doing a huge amount of work promoting wet paint which anyone who's ever published a book knows how much work that is yeah (laughs) how is that how is that fitting together now yeah but it's yeah it's a work in progress the um (laughs) the balancing act um it you know it really depends on where I am at in my various schedules um so at the moment with with the art books I I've kind of been able to put them to one side while I've been focusing on the wet paint promotion um I took a couple of weeks off the freelancing around kind of publication day just to really soak it all up and enjoy it um And also, you know, I was talking about it a lot and I wanted to be able to focus on that. Now I'm kind of right back into the freelancing as well. And I don't know, it's something, I don't know if I've totally cracked the the workload kind of balance yet, but I, on the whole, think that they complement each other really well. I mean, just thinking, for example, about the novel writing and the journalism, the novel writing is until you get to the editing stage, such a long, solitary mm. process. And I, for one, really like a to-do list and to be able to tick stuff off my to-do list, uh, which I wouldn't be able to do for a long time if I was just sitting writing a novel. Um, and, you know, I like to get out there and to interview mm. people and and with the promo stuff to talk to people like we're doing now. Um, so, you know, at times I think it can spill over into too much work and it can be quite hard to to keep all the like different plates spinning. But on the whole, I think that they they do complement each other well. And obviously now, as you know, I kind of smuggle one into the other, you know, smuggling the art into my fiction, <laughs> which I don't know, you know, I don't know if that's something I'll always do, but it, it is a spoiler um it happens with the second <laughs> the second book too um so yeah I don't know if that's a satisfying or helpful no, answer it, it for is. people um I think it's really interesting because I don't know this idea of I think because of having been I guess a creative freelancer for like 20 years now um this idea that we only do one kind of thing and that um we do it in a vacuum and in a way I think sometimes people think of novelists as living in this kind of vacuum but um you know where would the novels be without all of the different inputs from other parts of your life and you know it's funny I can't quite imagine only writing in that way um when I wrote nonfiction, part of the reason I wanted to be in nonfiction and not memoir was because I wanted to interview loads of other people and have lots of other mm. stories in the book um, because yeah. that seemed interesting to me. Like I was like, oh, I want to talk to people. I want to talk to people. Yeah. Um, and the idea of only writing about myself was like, oh, I'll just have to be by myself though. <laughs> and as much as I love spending time alone writing I love to balance it off with speaking to others and being out in the world and interviewing people and all those other things it's that side of writing is completely fascinating to me as well 
Yeah, and it's where you get your inspiration, isn't it? By by yeah, going out there and and seeing things and doing things and overhearing things and um, you know, at least when it comes to fiction. So yeah, I think oh, I think also there's the there's the danger of that kind of slightly um romanticized old-fashioned view of a writer, um, you know, who toils away at one one thing and mm. um is very solitary and only writes when inspiration strikes uh that that's <laughs> just you know I mean for most of us not real <laughs> I don't know for anyone is that real life I, know, I, think, I think if you only wrote when you're inspired you wouldn't get a lot of writing done no I don't think no <laughs> but it's, it's amazing how much needing to get paid will make you sit down at the computer <laughs> yeah <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you today. Um, and I, and where, where's the best place to people, people to find you online if they wanted to connect with you or catch up, like which, which social media and things are best to find you? So I am on Twitter and Instagram at Chloe L. Ashby. And I have a website, which is chloeashby.com. Um, well I will put both of the, all of those in the in the show notes thank you so much it was such a pleasure and wet paint was just completely engrossing and delightful and oh it was just an amazing world to be immersed in so thank you so much for writing it. oh well thank you no thank you so much and that makes me very happy um and I've loved talking to you so thanks Penny <laughs> 